Taiwan's recent election ended in ruling party candidate Lai Ching-te securing the presidency, marking the first time a single party has led Taiwan for three consecutive terms. In many ways, Taiwan is an exemplary democracy these days. Deemed a choice between war and peace by China, Lai's Democratic Progressive Party's commitment to self-determination, social justice, and resistance to external pressures struck a chord, securing nearly 40% of the votes despite domestic challenges. But what does this mean for the nature of Taiwan's ties with China? Beijing still has a, a kind of hearts and minds strategy, try to convince them of the benefits of greater engagement and of favoring positions that uh, Beijing likes. And how does this election influence their relations with the world? Uh, Taiwan in the U.S. imagination has always been more than just Taiwan. It's also existed as a kind of alternative to CCP rule on the Chinese mainland. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, we're joined by Dr. Karis Templeton, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and manager of the Project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region at Stanford University. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. Where I'd like to start, Karis, is with an overview. Uh, I think most of us have a general sense of what happened in the elections, but I think it would very much help us to hear from you uh, your sense of what some of the key outcomes and implications are of the elections that were on the 13th and what they tell us about Taiwan at the current moment. Yeah, so um, thanks again, Courtney, for having me on tonight. It's a pleasure to to talk with you and your, your membership here. Um, so uh, Taiwan had its general elections for both the president and the legislature on January 13th. Uh, both bodies are on a four-year election cycle. Um, so uh, the the election that was held uh, last Saturday, it comes around once every four years. Um, and uh, just to give you a, a kind of brief synopsis of, of what happened and, and who the parties were, we had a three-candidate race for the presidency uh, featuring... Uh, Lai Qingde, the current vice president of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, uh, facing off against two challengers, um, the KMT, or Guomindang's candidate, Ho Yi, who is the mayor of New Taipei City, uh, and then the third candidate, Ko Wenjia, the former mayor of Taipei, and the founder of a new political party called the Taiwan People's Party, or TPP. And for the first time since 2000, uh, all three candidates won over 20% of the vote. Uh, so this was a true three-way race. Uh, and uh, right up until the end, it wasn't clear whether voters would abandon Coenja, the kind of upstart challenger, to um, vote strategically for one of the two major party candidates. Uh, and in the end, they mostly didn't. They mostly stuck with Coenja. And so uh, we got a closely contested race with Lai Qingde of the DPP winning with just 40% of the vote, uh, Ho Yi coming in second with 33.5%, and Ko Wenjia um, coming in third, but with a, a pretty uh, remarkable 26.5%. Uh, and so um, uh, Lai uh, 
won the election for the DPP, but the DPP also can't really claim a mandate in this election because 40% of the, or 60% of the electorate voted for someone else. Uh, and so this was not really a, a, a ringing endorsement of eight years of DPP rule. Uh, and then in the legislative race, uh, the DPP uh, had a seven seat majority when it went into this election uh, and it came out without a majority. So the voters, um, uh, about a dozen seats actually flipped from the DPP to the KMT. Uh, and so we have a closely contested, closely split legislature now with the KMT at 52 seats, the DPP at 51 seats. Uh, two independents and the TPP holding the balance of power in the middle between the two major parties. So no party controls a majority and uh, we're in for four years of, of coalition building, I think, in the legislature. Um, and in, in terms of implications, um, I uh, well, let's start with Beijing and their response to this. Um, Beijing clearly uh, does not like the DPP, did not want to see them reelected. And so in that sense, this uh, this presidential outcome was not what they wanted. Um, but uh, they responded by noting that 60% of the electorate voted for someone besides the uh, DPP and that mainstream opinion is no longer with the DPP. Uh, and so they've kind of framed this as at least trends are moving in the right direction in Taiwan. Um, uh, in terms of the U.S. response, I think uh, Lai's election was long expected in the United States. Uh, and uh, shortly after the election results were known, uh, the Biden administration dispatched a, uh, a delegation, bipartisan delegation of uh, former retired officials to Taiwan to meet with uh, the now president-elect and his team. Um, and the statement issued by the State Department about this election was uh, pretty generic and in line with past elections. Um, and so the U.S. side is trying to signal that it's um, business as usual in this relationship and that um, there there will be no change in U.S. policy as a result of the election. Thank you. So just sticking on the domestic side for a moment, what do you make of the fact that, that the legislature did flip and what are the implications? I know you mentioned that it would be four years of coalition building, but what does that look like, especially in such a highly charged area of the world? Yeah, um, well, it means it's going to be difficult to depart from the status quo. Um, so certainly in cross-strait relations, I don't think Lai is going to be able to push legislation or other reforms uh, that would... Uh, shake things up. Um, and so from Beijing's perspective, that's probably a good thing. Um, from the U.S. perspective, that's probably a good thing as well. Um, the uh, possibility for coalition building um, is a little bit uncertain in part because the Taiwan People's Party, this upstart party, is has deliberately positioned itself in the middle of the political spectrum on almost every issue. Uh, and They've been quite vague about what they stand for. They're basically, to this point, they've been a, a vehicle for Koenja himself to run for the presidency. And the legislative uh, slate was uh, far overshadowed by Ku and his personality. Um, and uh, so as a party without any kind of core values or uh, you know signature policy issues, 
they actually make an ideal coalition partner for both the other major parties. They they're look pretty easy to buy off, actually. And so uh, I, both the DPP and KMT have also already reached out to the TPP to try to get them on side and to uh, get their support uh, in the uh, election of the legislative speaker and then potentially on policy issues that they care about as well. Great. Thank you. You you mentioned China's reaction and China uh, in Beijing is trying to frame this story as one where 60% of the electorate uh, didn't actually vote uh, for the incumbent party. Um, what do you make of China's reaction more broadly? And how do you think Beijing will respond to uh, four more years and, and a uh, split presidency and uh, legislature, depending on what happens with coalition Yeah, excellent question. Um, so first I'd note the after election night, um, so Lai Qingda gave his victory speech at about 9 p.m. Um, and uh, in that speech, he was quite vague about cross-strait relations. So uh, in particular, he didn't repeat uh, some of the phrases that Tsai Ing-wen has used to talk about cross-strait relations. And um, I, in doing that, I think he left himself uh, some room to uh, potentially carve out a new approach, uh, or at least a new uh, set of rhetorical positions. Uh, and he avoided, I think, saying anything that would give Beijing an excuse to react harshly to his election. Um, so... Uh, and then on the Beijing sides, um, their statements were, uh, I would say not, you know, they have a long history of, of saying very unflattering things about the DPP and, and indicating that um, the DPP and anybody associated with them is a just a, an irredeemable independent splitist. And by those standards, they were fairly moderate in their uh, statement on the election as well. And so... Uh, so far, at least, we haven't seen either rhetorical or actual um, fireworks in the relationship. Um, um, so we'll see uh, that there. Taiwan has this quirk where the legislature is actually inaugurated on February 1st for another term, but the president doesn't come in until May 20th. So there's actually a long transition period that we have to go through before Lai Qingda takes office. Um, and the fact that the legislature will not be under DPP control anymore means that uh, Beijing, I think, can afford to be patient and wait uh, wait for Lai to, you know, signal what he's going to do in cross-strait relations uh, without worrying too much about uh, the kind of lame duck period where Tsai Ing-wen no longer has a majority in the legislature. The legislature will block any kind of last-ditch attempts to change things um, before uh, before the transition of administration takes place. So um, so we'll see, but I think uh, given the, the possible outcomes that could have happened right after this election, we're in a period where um, so far both sides have shown some moderation. That said, um, Beijing has also already flipped a diplomatic ally of Taiwan. Taiwan had 13 before this election. Uh, Nauru just announced yesterday they were going to recognize the PRC and de-recognize the ROC on Taiwan. And so um, that something like that was expected. I don't think we could uh, identify which of those remaining allies would make the flip, but 
Uh, it was pretty clear Beijing had been working on this and had it in reserve in case the election outcome didn't go the way they wanted it to, and are using this to send a shot across the bow of, of Leichinga's um, administration, his incoming administration. Before we move on to some other reactions from other countries, I wanted to just stay a little bit on the domestic piece one more time in, in the transition period. What would you be looking for as the cabinet is being built in terms of signaling which way the administration might go in terms of its overall policy, particularly toward China? Yeah. Um, I don't want to get too into the weeds of intra-party politics, but uh, let me just note that there's uh, a couple different I don't want to call them factions, but a couple different groupings within the DPP. There's um, the the part of the DPP that Lai Qingda came up with uh, tends to be a little more grassroots and a little uh, greener, so so more China skeptical or or pro independence friendly. Um, and so, uh, in terms of who he appoints to his new government, it'll be interesting to see how many holdovers there are from the Tsai administration. Um, and Tsai was much more towards the moderate wing of the DPP. Um, so if you see a lot of holdovers or other people who are not part of Lai's, uh, Lai's faction within the DPP, um, I think that will give you some indication of what his administration is going to do and look like. Um, the other question here I have is, uh, the the bargaining among the TPP and KMT and DPP has already begun, and the TPP is actually in a position to push for uh, a, a ministry or two in the, the incoming administration. Um, I don't know if they'll get it. I don't know if Lai is, is willing to consider that, but you know, it's, it's part of the bargaining space right now. And uh, so it's possible that you could have the, a, a TPP member or even Ko Wenja himself offered a position in the Lai cabinet. Uh, and that, that raises some interesting questions then about uh, whether they could strike a broader kind of coalition agreement um, that would uh, give Lai a working majority in the legislature going forward. So um, I'm watching that pretty closely over the next couple of months as well. Have there been any global reactions that surprised you? Um, well, the Philippines, uh, the president of the Philippines had a tweet congratulating Lai Qingda for his, his victory. And uh, there was a pretty harsh reaction from Beijing in response to that. Um, they, I think... Uh, called in a called in the Philippine ambassador and and sent him a demarche. Um, so uh, that exchange is is interesting at least, maybe not surprising given the the way that Philippine China relations have gone over the last year. But uh, it's a it's a good sign, and Philippines is is a really important potential. Well, it's an important U.S. ally and a, a an important unofficial. Uh, partner of Taiwan as well. And so if they're willing to, to say this publicly in a way that Beijing really doesn't like, um, that uh, that's a good sign for Taiwan and, and secondarily for the U.S. Uh, ability to, to work with partners and allies to help Taiwan. Um, so that was one thing that I noticed over the last 48 hours. 
Great. Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to just dig into the U.S. Uh, role in within just observing the elections and beyond. Um, so considering Taiwan's significance in U.S. strategic interests in Asia Pacific, how has the role of Taiwan evolved over time in the eyes of Washington? Um, and I know you mentioned that it, the reaction from the State Department seemed pretty even keel. Um, what, what do you expect going forward? Uh, well, so Taiwan's strategic interest to the U.S. Um, really goes back to June 1950 during the uh, the beginning of the Korean War. The U.S. actually intervened at that point to prevent the PLA from coming across the strait. And the U.S., in effect, has been there ever since, keeping Taiwan uh, as a de facto independent state. Um, so the, the first U.S. interest in Taiwan is ensuring that there remains a a uh, regime that is friendly to U.S. interests on the island. Um, Taiwan also had this amazing growth period in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and I think the U.S. can rightly claim some credit for that growth. Uh, Taiwan's um, takeoff was uh, driven in part by uh, having tariff-free access to the U.S. market, or at least privileged access to the U.S. market, and um, so Taiwan is a kind of success story um, that the U.S. can point to um, in terms of its its uh, posture during the Cold War and relationship with allies and partners in the region. Uh, and then Taiwan's transition to democracy and consolidation of democracy is, has become a pretty important U.S. interest as well. Um, number one, because democracies around the world are struggling a little bit. Uh, number two, because... Uh, Taiwan in the U.S. imagination has always been, um, it, it's always been more than just Taiwan. It's also existed as a kind of alternative to CCP rule on the Chinese mainland. And so if you see Taiwan grow quickly, uh, develop, uh, share prosperity widely among its people, and consolidate a liberal democratic regime, that suggests you don't need the CCP in charge to you know, to have a prosperous, free place. Um, and so the the CCP's insistence that Taiwan is a part of China and should always be a part of China is has an ironic kind of implication that, well, if Taiwan really is Chinese, um, you know, the CCP could, um, you know, it might do China better actually to, uh, for the CCP to link, relinquish one party control. And so uh, I personally think Taiwan's success as a democracy as well as an important U.S. interest. Um, and then, uh, so the fact that they've just concluded another successful election, it was hotly contested, uh, and yet the votes were counted in less than five hours. We know exactly who won. There's no disputed, even in the legislative races, even in the really close ones, there's no recounts. Nobody is contesting the result, uh, and everybody has... Uh, kind of accepted that the voters delivered their verdict and and they've already transitioned into into figuring out what comes next. So in many ways, Taiwan is an exemplary democracy these days. Um, th th thank you for that. Um, the takeaway that I hear from you talking is that based on the reactions from China and Washington and the somewhat split not quite split result is that 
it almost seems to be a stabilizing result in that there aren't going to be any major shifts in policy. Is that is that a correct takeaway or would you finesse that? Yeah, um, let me elaborate on that a little bit. I think that's basically right. Um, certainly from the U.S. side, uh, this is a continuation of a DPP administration that they've grown very comfortable with. Uh, and so Lai is a new entity, a new president, uh, but the broader kind of comfort level with the Thai administration and their approach to security and uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations uh, has been pretty good. And, and the general sense I get from people in Washington is that they expect that to continue. Um, on Beijing's side, let me elaborate a little bit on, on what their strategy has been over the last eight years with the DPP administration. And then I suspect that this strategy will continue with just some uh, some ratcheting up or down along the in the, in the margins. Um, so uh, the approach ever since Tsai Ing-wen was elected uh, has been what I'll call a dual track strategy. So they've had a hard side and a soft side to their Taiwan approach. Um, on the hard side, they've tried to squeeze the DPP administration and undermine their popularity in Taiwan. And so uh, they've got three types of tools in their toolkit to do this, uh, diplomatic, economic, and military. And on the diplomatic front, they've flipped a bunch of diplomatic allies. Uh, they've uh, basically prevented Taiwan from having any sort of uh, de facto participation in international organizations, such as the World Health Assembly or ICAO. Um, on the economic front, uh, they've played politics with some symbolic uh, economic exports to the mainland. Um, is, many of you are probably aware of uh, you know, Beijing's um, sudden bans or suspension of imports, at least on Taiwan agricultural products. Uh, there was uh, one a couple of years ago, pineapples, where uh, Taiwan was shipping a large share of its pineapple crop to the mainland. Suddenly it was announced that the mainland found pests in some of the pineapples and they were going to ban them uh, as a result. And uh, so there was this kind of rally around the flag effect in Taiwan. Uh, people started eating lots of pineapple to support the administration. And then uh, Japan stepped up and imported the rest of the pineapples. And so it didn't actually hurt Taiwan, but it was it was intended to send a kind of symbolic rebuke to the Thai administration and to try to, over the long run, undercut her support among politically important constituencies in, in the pineapple growing parts of Taiwan. Uh, they've tried to do that with other goods as well, other mostly agricultural products, mostly products that don't have a big impact on the, the kind of overall dollar amount in trade, um, but that have you know, high symbolic resonance. So everybody in Taiwan can understand what a pineapple is. Uh, they, you know, have a good sense of uh, what it means to have a ban on pineapples going to the mainland. Whereas if you have some obscure petrochemical product that you impose it on, it doesn't have the same political impact. So Beijing has deliberately used that kind of economic lever to try to uh, hurt the Tsai administration's popularity. Um, and then on the, the military front, I imagine this is the part that everybody here knows about, um, that the PLA has engaged in uh, much more extensive exercises in the, the air and sea space around Taiwan. Um, so most prominently during and after the Nancy Pelosi visit uh, in 2022, um, they 
launched large-scale military exercises uh, near Taiwan, and they've continued to run, um, you know, flights, and uh, they've they've sailed ships through um, through international waters, but waters that are quite close to Taiwan, and that they had water and airspace that they had previously avoided intruding into, and so they've in effect created a kind of new normal where. PLA uh, aircraft are, are consistently crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait and uh, in some cases encircling the island. So flying from north to south around the east coast and, and back in. Um, and that uh, has been widely publicized in Taiwan. The Taiwan Ministry of National Defense now routinely tweets out uh, maps with lines showing where the flights ostensibly took place. Uh, and I think actually that kind of plays into Beijing's strategy. They want the Taiwanese to be aware of all of the military operations around Taiwan and, and to feel more and more kind of threatened by that. So um, so that's the playbook uh, on the hard side. Um, on the soft side, though, uh, Beijing still has a, a kind of hearts and minds strategy where they're trying to engage with anybody who is not obviously pro-DPP or pro-independence and try to convince them of the benefits of greater engagement and of favoring positions that uh, Beijing likes. And so uh, members of the KMT have frequently gone to the mainland and engaged with their counterparts there. Um, you know, lots of business people in Taiwan, when they go to the mainland, they still are, are in some cases, you know, uh, given very favorable treatment. Um, uh, especially by local governments who love Taiwanese investment and want to see more of it. Um, and uh, there's also been a push to restart. Um, well, after COVID, you know, the the people to people exchanges across the strait really were shut down for a couple of years. And after COVID, the Chinese mainland side is really interested in seeing those restart. And so, um, the what I'll call the soft track of this two two track policy remains in effect, and I expect to see them uh, continue to push that even with a third DPP term uh, looming on the horizon. So uh, overall, what I'd expect is continued use of this diplomatic, military, and economic coercion uh, to try to hurt Lai and his administration, but at the same time. Uh, efforts to demonstrate that if you're not the DPP, if you're not pro-independence, look at all these good things that will come to you and uh, to con continue to try to shift public opinion in a, a pro-China, pro-PRC or pro-unification direction. Great. Thank you. And one final question. Um, so if you're China and you're looking to perhaps draw in some of those non-DPP um, supporters, what are, is there, are there some clear demographic or other indicators of, of who supports which party? Um, you know, when, when you're looking at it, is it generational? Is it urban rural? Is it, what, what, what is the, what is the, it, are, are there natural divides within the constituencies? Yeah, great question. Um, it's complicated, but uh, I'll massively simplify here and say age is by far the most important demographic variable, um, especially in this election. Uh, old people voted, um, so old, uh, I should be careful, older people here voted, uh, those over 60 uh, supported 
the DPP or the KMT candidates at, at very high rates and really did not support Ke Wenjie. So Ke was polling at 5% or below in the over 60 demographic. He was polling in some polls as high as 50% in the under 40 demographic. Um, so the age gradient here is just enormous. Um, and the that worries both parties uh, for different reasons. Um, the KMT uh, has long struggled with younger voters. Uh, it, it's pretty strong um, in the, well, we call them late middle-aged folks now in the, the 40 to 60 category. Um, it has a, a core base among older voters who were uh, disproportionately mainlanders. Um, and um, so uh, the challenge for it, though, is that very few people under 40 would even consider voting for the KMT. And we actually saw that in this election. They did quite poorly in the demographic. Um, for the DPP, the concern is uh, they were used to being the party of young voters uh, until now. And young voters, by and large, abandoned them in this election. And they're kind of scratching their heads trying to figure out why that was and what they can do potentially to get young voters back. Um, and so the real beneficiary of that swing has been Ke Wenja and the Taiwan People's Party. And they're, you know, we had a big uh, conversation, a bunch of us who were there to, to observe the election the night after the election. And the, the top question was, you know, what are what are young voters thinking? What What is appealing to them about Ke Wenja and the TPP? Or um, another way to, to ask this question is, is to flip it and say, why didn't they vote for the DPP in this election? Why are they so disillusioned with the DPP when in 2016 and 2020, they voted overwhelmingly for Tsai Ying? Thank you for listening to this episode of Global Insights. For more insight and analysis on global events, and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org and follow us on social media.